Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode. Wherever, whenever, however you might be listening, we're glad that you're with us. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and pleased to welcome to the microphone today, Zach Bowden. Zach and his wife, Emily, are members here at Grace Baptist Church, and God has given Zach in particular a great love and appreciation for church history. And as we record this episode, the world is celebrating the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I've asked Zach to join me today to share about that very important period of time from 500 years ago and to discuss its relevance for the church today. So, Zach, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Barry. We're just we're super grateful to be members of Grace and super grateful to have this conversation. Well, this is one of those one-offs. We are straying from our normal course of sure. following the uh, the church sermon schedule. But I think with a subject like the Reformation, boy, it comes every year that we celebrate this it anniversary. Does. But it's good to, to pause for a moment and reflect back to where we've been. So, And let's start with that. Give us a, just a short rehearsal of what the Re- the Reformation really was and is. Right. So, like you said, you know, we are recording here on November first. So, yesterday is that marker we use as the beginning point of what we call the Protestant Reformation, when an old German monk named Martin Luther sent somebody, kind of like an intern, to go post what we call ninety-five theses at the church door there at Wittenberg, and that kind of marks the beginning of this moment we know as the Protestant Reformation. And there's one Lutheran pastor who I think summarized it well when he said the Reformation really was a response to a pastoral crisis. It was a response to the people's concern for how can really how can we truly stand before a righteous God? How can we as sinners know that we can actually stand before a righteous God? How can we know that our sins are forgiven? This was something that plagued everybody's consciences during the late medieval period, and the Reformation really arose in a variety of different personalities in different places across the world to respond to that crisis. Well, you talked about the medieval period you know, 500 years ago, we also called the Middle Ages, and the late Middle Ages. What does it have to do with us here in the 21st century then? That's a great question. And when you think about church history, it's really easy to think that's a really good means of taking a nap. I mean, church history doesn't have a good reputation, and there's there's certainly some good reasons for that. It can feel like the broccoli of academic curriculum. But when I've always seen uh, it— Zach, I like broccoli. <laughs> well, I, I do too. I do too, and I want my kids to eat it. But I really see church history as like a good Brazilian steakhouse in the sense that you get to try everything. And one of the ways it was taught to me is just to kind of remind ourselves that we're not the first people to read our Bibles And that's really good news in the sense that God has gifted us with this wonderful treasure we call the Christian tradition, and the Reformation is just simply building upon that. And so what we find here is we find some insights from some men and women who lived in vastly different times than us. So for instance, since we're just coming off Halloween, it would not have been strange to hear Martin Luther say, watch out for goblins as you walk through the forest. 
that would have been entirely plausible for him in the world in which we live. And he meant it and a he, lot differently. Oh than no, he absolutely <laughs> meant it. Meant it. His his mother believed they lived next door to a witch. I mean, it was just a fa- vastly different world. But even in the midst of that strangeness, that's where we can really learn some of the commonalities we have with men like Martin Luther and those men and women he pastored to, because they're still kind of asking these basic questions: How can we have forgiveness of our sins from God? And so it is kind of allows us to look at it in kind of all of its all of its strangeness and uniqueness and with the phrase those who forget or fail to study history are bound to repeat it I, I think, here. yeah, I think to some degree they are. You know, the the famous philosopher George Santayana made that point. And and while not not a not a Christian himself, there is something to the fact that we have this this wonderful gift, which is what the tradition is, and it's a means by which we can see how God has been faithful in His church throughout history. And also just to think about the fact that the old Archbishop of of Canterbury over the Church of England, when he was talking about church history, he kind of made this wonderful comment that we never know, we'll never know this side of heaven, how many debts of gratitude we owe. So when we study church history, it just kind of reminds us, oh, wow, we actually have a debt of gratitude for somebody like Martin Luther or Ulrich Zwingli or John Calvin. Even if we disagree with them significantly at different points, we have much to say thank you to them uh, for the work they did so that we can say things and even sing things that we we take for granted that, that took them a substantial amount of work and suffering. You made the comment, we're not the first to read the scriptures. Right. Uh, it, it takes me to that point. This was a, a time in history where it was somewhat of a confluence of social, cultural, technological, spiritual forces or spiritual um, uh, circumstances that brought us to that point. It, it reminds me that the, the time was just right for something like this. God had ordained this, it would, it would appear. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it really was, you know, the the match kind of coming near to the powder keg in the sense that if you take, for instance, just the invention of the printing press in Gutenberg, there are a lot of questions in terms of, well, did the printing press cause the Reformation or the Reformation, you know, <laughs> vice versa? And th- that question itself is just helpful to remind ourselves that people were hungry for things to be able to read and access once the printing press came into existence. And so that was just a wonderful means where the things that are flying off the shelves at that time, they're everything having to do with religion. So Luther was a bestseller. And that's kind of hard for us to imagine some, to some degree when we think that the stuff that kind of tends to fly off the shelves in our day, it's very different. It's, it's self-help. It's Harry Potter, this or that. Whereas in their day, it was just the talk of God was really everywhere. And that's why for the reformers, literacy was such a big deal. Because if you can train people to read, you can train them above all to be able to read the scriptures. And that was one of the key things they were, of course, after. So I hear the word reformed. <clears throat> we hear it used a lot, and it's used in names and about the theology of many different denominations, associations of churches. When a church suggests that it teaches reformed theology, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Oh, yeah, sure. That's a great question. And in some degree, that's in the eye of the beholder. But when we think about the Protestant Reformation, you could also think about it as the Protestant Reformations, plural, in the sense that you have a Reformation going on in Germany with Martin Luther. Then at the same time, you have a reformation going on in Switzerland with a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. You have a reformation going on with a group we know as the Anabaptists. 
You have a reformation going on in England, and you have a reformation going on with what we call Roman Catholicism. And so when we think about the Reformed tradition, we almost always think about our favorite Frenchman, John Calvin, but it actually doesn't begin with him. I mean, he's a second-generation reformer, and so I love to tell students that when Luther's having his 95 theses nailed, John Calvin's at home playing with his Martin Luther Power Ranger doll, <laughs> in the sense that uh, Ulrich Zwingli is the one who stands at the beginning of the Reformed tradition. And so that develops significantly, significantly from him out of Zurich. And typically when people refer to Reformed theology, they're only referring to a part of it. And they're referring to a Reformed understanding of salvation. Uh, but the Reformed tradition is much broader than that. And that's important to keep in mind because there were some, there were some who would say that you really you either have it all or you don't have anything at all. And so typically when you hear Reformed, people are referring to what we, the so-called Five Points of Calvinism, which, of course, weren't written by John Calvin. They actually come much later after his death. But that's typically what we mean when, when people are referring to Reformed theology, although there's certainly much more to that. And there are some of those pre-Reformers, wouldn't Tyndale... Uh, That's Tindale, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You have you have William Tyndale in England. You also have uh, John Wycliffe and John Huss. And one of the interesting thing about these pre-reformers, one of the interesting thing that unites them is their hunger for people to get scriptures in the languages they can actually read. And that's one of the wonderful things and one of the stories about the Reformation is you really can't tell it without a thirst for getting the Bible to the people, and, and just that they're so desperate for it. And kind of going back to that idea of the debts of gratitude we have, that's certainly one of them. The fact that we can sit here in the 21st century and read our Bibles, especially our English Bibles, has a lot to do with the work of precisely somebody like William Tyndale, who was uh, sadly eventually burned at the stake for, for his efforts in getting the Bible to the masses. Good, great. So let's talk a little bit current day. We're currently studying chapters two and three. We're starting sure. chapter one of Revelation and chapters two and three, specifically messages from Jesus Christ to the seven churches there in Asia and Asia Minor. Let's talk about the Reformation in the context of that current sermon series. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, I think when we think about the Reformation is that the Reformation is, is absolutely concerned with the church and what the local church is, and, and the nature of the church, and all of those kinds of things. And so when we think about that, uh, that's where you find people like, for instance, Martin Luther, who is very much the rock star of the beginning of the Reformation, once it, once it first takes off, is that Martin Luther is perhaps more than anything else concerned about the preaching of the word. Uh, he, later on in his life, when he has been excommunicated, and he is trapped for safekeeping in the Wartburg Castle. He had to leave to go under the cover of darkness to go preach a series of sermons to kind of quell a little rebellion that had broken out in the town of Wittenberg. And as he's reflecting on the method of reform, how did this thing all get started? Luther said, well, I didn't do anything. The Word did everything. Is mm -hmm. Luther's method of reform was to let the Word do its work. And I think that's always a helpful word for us to keep in mind in terms of at the heart of the Reformation is a trust that God will do his work through his word in the churches. And that just kind of reminds us of the fact that the job description of a pastor really hasn't changed all that much. That if a church will be faithful to preach the word, practice baptism, and practice the supper, that's her job. And that's what she needs to continue to do. And the Reformation was about clarifying and simplifying uh, what the church 
must do uh, throughout the ages of, of its existence. And a little historical side note, I believe, I understand that it was Luther's intent was not to leave the Catholic Church. His intent was to ask questions and stimulate discussion about how to reform the Catholic Church and not start a Protestant Reformation. No, no, that's exactly right. And that's, so as one historian's put it, is that if you want to summarize the Protestant Reformation, it's a fight over who, who owns the word Catholic. Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, they never wanted to give up the word Catholic. They believed that belonged to them too, but it was an argument over where is the true church of Christ to be found and what what are the types of marks and characteristics of her. And so they're obviously having this argument in a variety of ways with Rome. And so you certainly can't divorce the Protestant Reformation from an understanding of of what the church is, is that the reformers know their early church fathers, and they affirm what, you know, something like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, they affirm, we believe in one holy Catholic church, absolutely. Because, you know, growing up in a in a small Baptist church in South Texas, if, if I said, you know, I, I believe all of those things, people are going to look at me with very suspicious eyes. But we have to remember that, you know, Catholic just means universal. And, and, I, that, have to, and I have to admit, when I was a child, when we would recite that creed right. in the Presbyterian Church, right? I left that word out. That's right. I had to leave it yes. out because convictionally I couldn't say that. That's of course, right. I didn't understand what Catholic right. meant, just no. universal. That's right. No, yes, sir. And that would have been that would have been my exact response. That would have been the response of the local church I grew up in. Is we know we're for sure not Roman Catholic, and uh, we don't want to do anything that seems Catholicy, and and that, that's certainly right. Talk to me about specific scriptures. Uh, now we're talking in the context of, of Luther, right. but certainly the other reformers you've mentioned, Zwingli, you mentioned right. Calvin, and uh, we could go to Knox. We could go sure. I, later on. I imagine you would include uh, the uh, uh, there in England. Others, Absolutely. But the, uh, Newtons and so forth. But anyway, let's go to passages of, of scripture that, opened up this whole discussion in Luther's mind. Where where did he start? What really clicked and said, let's let's move forward with this right. discussion? Well, I'll certainly talk about Luther because he's my absolute favorite. And there's a wonderful quote from a professor who says, to love Luther is to love life. And I don't think that's far from the mark. <laughs> and what Luther really was in his many roles is he was an Old Testament professor. And so, at least for me, that's always kind of surprising because I want to go straight to somewhere like Romans or Galatians, but the pathway for Luther's Reformation discovery really came through the Old Testament, and especially through the Psalms. So if you think about uh, the, in the Psalms of Ascent, for instance, uh, there's a wonderful psalm, the number is eluding me right now, where the Psalter is asking a question, if you, Lord, should count our sins, who could stand? And it's there that Luther makes his very, very famous comment on the doctrine of justification. And the verse then follows that, but with you there is forgiveness. And so it's really that psalm that really summarizes for Luther this idea that the forgiveness of sins is only done by God, and it's only given on the basis of His grace. And our part in it is simply to receive it as a gift, and that's what we call faith. And so from that, Luther then goes on and he does a series of lectures twice 
on Galatians, which is his favorite book of the Bible. He nicknamed it Kate, uh, which is named after his wife. And Luther, of course, was a monk. His wife was a former nun, and that's a fascinating story in and of what itself. A great match. That is a great match. Well, and, they, and then they raised their children in a former monastery. So <laughs> it's an absolutely wonderful story, a movie waiting to be made. But that's precisely what we find there is that in, in Galatians, Luther really sees and, and has clarified his understanding of what the Christian life is, all kind of summarizing this idea of Christian freedom. But it started with an Old Testament that's right. Expert. That's right. And and he never he never got beyond the Old Testament. So he was frequently in Genesis and Exodus. Those are some of his most beloved essays. He has a wonderful essay on how Christians should regard Moses, which is always a tough question for us as Christians. What are we supposed to do with this thing we call the Old Testament? Luther thought about that a lot. We it's very easy to look at these reformers. Uh, you would. I assume, say, even though you love uh, Luther, you would say Luther was not a perfect man. Oh, no, absolutely Calvin, not. Calvin has his skeletons. Right. Uh, we could say quite literally. Absolutely. And on down the line. Sure. Well, can we talk about that? A lot of people, I, I'm afraid that we sometimes throw the baby out with the bathwater. Of course. Um, Calvin, he, he, he basically sentenced people to death if mm-hmm. they didn't believe mm-hmm. like him. Luther was anti-Semitic on down right. the line. Can we talk about that a little bit, separating the truth that they preached from the people, the sinful people that they were. That's right. No, it, it's really hard and it's really messy. And and one of the things we always want to do is we want to be sure and we tell the truth. And we don't want to whitewash our heroes. We need to tell the t- truth about Luther and Calvin, and we need to tell the truth about many, many figures in American evangelicalism who own slaves. We have to be honest about these things, but we do it within within the reality knowing that God uses sinners. He does, and we see that in the scriptures over and over again. Abraham sells out his wife twice. We know the escapades of Moses and the disciples. We we see this over and over again. Does that excuse the sin? Absolutely not. But it helps us to kind of understand that God has chosen to work in this world as it actually is. And what we find is that we have much we can learn from fallen men and women like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. And what we want to kind of understand is make sure we understand just that truth. They're sinners, but yet God is using sinners in this world for his purpose. And that doesn't mean we ever excuse the sin or anything like that. It just means we tell the truth about it and lament it and learn from it. So we can find in Martin Luther somebody who gives us an example of hope, but who also gives us an example of warning. Beware. If these things can happen to Luther, they can certainly happen to us too. And we are no better. That's no exactly no, no, and that's right. And that's it. Gives it reminds me of the wonderful C.S. Lewis line, where Lewis uh, challenges his students that for every new book you read, you read an old one. And the reason he said to do that is because it keeps you from being a chronological snob. And, you know, growing up in school, I know exactly what a snob is like. And we can see that snobbery kind of show itself up all the time. You know, for instance, you're studying a, studying a book of the Bible. Well, I'm only going to read the most recent commentary and not one from maybe the 16th century. Well, the reason we do that is we assume, well, we, we got to know better by now. And that's certainly not the case at all, is, is that there is so much. That's exactly right. There's so much wisdom back there for the taking, and we just simply just got to pick up a book and read it. Zach, some have suggested that a, that a church should always be in the process of reformation. What, what do you say to that? I think, I think it kind of depends on, on, on what they mean in, in the sense that 
what we need to know about the church is uh, somebody, there's a book on the Apostles' Creed, and the author made the point that when he kind of looks at the contemporary church, it seems like the church is much more comfortable with mission statements than creeds. And I thought that was an interesting comment. Not that there's anything wrong with mission statements. Certainly there's not. But it just—it it was a reminder of the fact that the church is, is a given, that the church is who she is by virtue of who God says she is. And so what that means for us is we need to simply be faithful to the confession God has given the church to say. So Paul says, you know, great is the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy. And he says the church is to confess and practice these things. So I think in terms of when we think about the Reformation, the Reformation wasn't a kind of revolution or anything like that for its own sake, but it was trying to clarify this is who the church is, and this is the mission and task we need to be faithful to. So I think the question we need to always ask is, are we being faithful to the calling God has placed on our local church, which is to preach the word, uh, practice baptism, practice the supper, and go out from this place to share the gospel and and do the work of missions and evangelism and those kinds of things, is we simply need to be faithful to that in in the midst of all of these pressures of, we need to do something new and novel and those kinds of things is the study of church history can remind us, no, this is this is who the church, this is who God has called the church to be, and he has made us a promise. Gates of hell are never going to prevail against it. Somebody's listening today and they may say, you know, I've never really studied a whole lot or read a whole lot about the Reformation. Are there some resources you can point them to? Oh, yes. There, there are a lot of wonderful, wonderful books, a lot of really bad ones, too. But one place to get started is Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. If you want to kind of see all of church history in, in a very kind of well-written way, there are also just wonderful biographies. If you're interested in a particular period of time, you know, John Piper loves to say that, you know, you got to live a life to know what a life's like. But if you want to read a biography, you can like live a life in two hours or however long the biography is. So for instance, you know, we were just talking about Jonathan Edwards. There's a wonderful biography on Jonathan Edwards called A Shorter a Shorter Life by George Marsden. If you want to read something on Martin Luther, the still the standard classic is Here I Stand by Roland Bainton. And then there are a lot of wonderful compilations by men like Gerald McDermott, who has uh, the theologians of the Christian tradition that kind of helps you kind of get short biographies on some of the significant thinkers in both the East and the West. And so there are a lot of, lot of really kind of just wonderful resources like that. But I would also say there, there's no reason not to read the guys and gals themselves. So I always encourage friends to pick up The Freedom of a Christian by Martin Luther in 1520. I think it still stands as uh, perhaps you know the best book on what the gospel is and what the nature of the Christian life is. I, I go to that book often. I might also add, if I can just pipe in here, oh, yes. uh, I've been really blessed by a series of lectures that Bob Godfrey mm. uh, did yes. through uh, Ligonier Ministries. That's right. And they, he starts the church immediately post-crucifixion uh, post, uh, and ascension of Christ all the way through the 20th century. And uh, fascinating to yes. see the sweep of history. He has a focus on the medieval or Middle Ages and uh, the Reformation, just amazing. And that's where I've talked about those pre that's right. People really shows us the ramp up and how this came came to be. That's right. Yes, sir. And Ligonier, that's just it's a wonderful resource. And R.C. Sproul was doing this 
long and way before it was ever cool <laughs> to do. It was cool, right? And, right. and that, that is such a, that is exactly right. It's a wonderful place to go. Great. Zach, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate your, your wisdom. Thanks for your sharing your knowledge. But uh, it's a blessing to have you here thanks with us. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, Zach Bowden has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. And you can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll continue our discussion of God's Word as we continue in our sermon series in Revelations chapter 2. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.